Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Hello, good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com, episode 224, Friday, January the 14th, 2022. Mark, how are you? You're back home, I hear, after your extensive travels. We have. We've shot down from um, the northern rivers of New South Wales, where we spent uh, the last couple of weeks, visited a relative in Grafton, and we've uh, travelled down the um, down the uh, waterfall way, um, and then through from Armadale down to um, uh, to um, Newcastle, and we're home for a little while at least. You've done a lot of case. So as we're talking off air, Mark, you said it feels a bit weird being back home again. <laughs> it so really does. Did, and did I know. your children recognise you, Mark? <laughs> I did have to have a, a bit of a hairdresser's appointment at um, at uh, Lismore and um, had the com, you know, the the, the bush the ranger bush beard. Ranger. <laughs> That's right. The bush ranger hold. I had the whole hairdo beard the whole thing was going brendan uh, but they have been trimmed into and you know when you go to a hairdresser at lismore i'm not offering any judgment here but you end up uh, uh switching from hippie to hipster is the uh, uh, transition i made i thought you're gonna say and, and when you get yeah when you get your haircut on the road you you transition from bush ranger to to inmate <laughs> there's only two types of haircuts that you get there. Yes. so welcome back home and uh hello to everybody vetgurus.com is the place to go um hello to new subscribers um thank you to our three main sponsors which are mark chemical essentials <laughs> i thought you were going to jump in there um <laughs> Um, Oxbow Animal um, Health, or, or the Australian um, um, distributor of Oxbow Goods, and also, who have we got, Mark? Um, microchips <laughs> Australia. Our, yes, our, Microchips our Australia. Team at microchips Australia. As usual, um, well rehearsed after 224 <laughs> episodes, yeah, and polished. also polished. polished. And also thank you to all our supporters on Patreon, uh, our patrons. Um, go to vetgurus.com or find us on whatever podcast app you use and subscribe and tell your friends. That would be fantastic. Um, I think got- the, the, just before we go to yeah. the um, the review we have in line, I was just going to quickly ch- – because we haven't our software that does the podcast for us. It, it takes out some of the empty spaces, so we might be okay there. The sponsors might not really realise that we took a second uh, – to become organised and know who was about to speak. Do you think there's a chance that will happen, Brendan? Probably. <laughs> You're giving away all our secrets here of, of making us look a little bit less non-polished. There, Mark. Um, so, yeah, we have a review, and as usual, it's nothing to do. Well, it is a veterinary. Um, you, you saw the link there, didn't you? Um, we Both of us have managed to see the, see the very good film, The Power of the Dog, which 
um, is, well, you can talk about what it's about, Mark, um, a bit of an overview from, about it, and then we'll give a re review of it. But there is a bit of a veterinary link with it, isn't there, Mark? With I don't know how we're going to do that without giving away um, a major <laughs> spoiler, so perhaps um, we may not do that. But it's when you see the preview of this film, it, it, it looks like a... Um, a western, doesn't it? And um, but it's a western, not like any other western movie, is it, Mark? It's a western in setting only, and crikey's, it has an authentic feel to it. Um, you know, uh, Montana, nineteen twelve, I think, is the the uh, setting. But um, it was filmed in New Zealand, I understand. And crikey's, they did a good job of uh, making a realistic representation of. Um, um, the American West around the turn of uh, last century. Um, yeah, it is a, it's a, um, a difficult one to review in any um, extensive fashion without um, revealing critical plot details. So um, we won't we won't spoil anything, but just to say that um, it is a uh, you you recommended it to me, and you gave me good advice, Brendan. I think um, it's a slow burn. It's something that you've really got to sit through and not throw your hands up after twenty or thirty minutes. You've got to go the distance, um, and it is a little bit of a um, you know, uh, it's certainly not uh, a an action movie. Um, it is a, it's one that you've got to spend a bit of time reflecting on and and uh, looking at the small details, I think. Yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, yes, um, made by um, and directed and produced and co-wrote it, um, Jane Campion, um, based on a based on the novel but um and she um, a lot of our listeners would probably remember one of probably one of her most famous other feature films is the piano and i um so i love the piano and um yeah very very good film mark um my i think we have to give it an 8.6 out of 10 don't we there's, <laughs> exactly the number i was thinking of there's, there's nothing else we can give it it's a very very solid 8.6 out of 10 and yes um and it just, um, I think just a couple of days ago, it did win Best Film um, at the, um, uh, which awards was it? <laughs> it just happened the other day. Um, and also Best Actor as well, um, the lead up event to the Academy Awards. Um, so, um, yeah, highly recommended. And it's streaming on Netflix is where you can watch it. So you don't have to go into a, an actual cinema to watch it. Um, you can, if you have a net, Netflix subscription, you can watch it. So, but there is a veterinary link with it, so we strongly advise our listeners to watch it and see if you can um, see if you can pinpoint that link. And if you haven't, you've fallen asleep <laughs> in the film because <laughs> I think you'll notice that um, it sort of comes together near the end there, doesn't it? Um, that it really does. It is, uh, yeah. The slow burn does. It's not an explosive ending, but it is a bit of a uh, rush at the end, isn't it? It all um, yes. Changes yes. nature. Very good, very good film. Um, so let's jump into our two news stories, Mark. You have one. Um, you can take the first one. Um, funnily yes. enough, about birds. Songbirds. Yes, it's an interesting one that um, ties, you know, two of the topics we frequently talk about: birds and climate change. Um, it's a report about um, a European bird, Richard's pipit. We occasionally have 
uh, Richard's Pippet show up here in Australia um, because, uh, well, they migrate. They travel vast distances from um, Siberia to various parts of um, Southern Asia as the you know as the weather changes, um, and occasionally um, some of those birds end up. Um, well, they end up in the wrong place. Um, so uh, that's um, uh, the reason that they can show up here in Australia. We have our own Australasian pipit, a relatively common bird. doesn't tend to migrate as much as Richard's pipit. But in this report, um, some of these birds have been, uh, instead of um, heading north to Siberia from their relatively luxurious Southern Asian um, winter holidays, um, they've been wintering um, in Southern Europe in the uh, recent decades. And in, the interesting thing is that just like we get the occasional bird that ends up here in Australia, they, initially this was thought to be just you know bad weather, a variety of um, uh, one-off reasons that these birds might turn up in the wrong place. But um, it's become apparent that the numbers since the uh, 80s and 90s um, has grown dramatically so that now there's uh, quite a significant number of birds that, um, that make the journey to Europe rather than Siberia. And it has a couple of interesting characteristics, this... Uh, um, this uh, migration. It's the largest um, east-west migration rather than north-south to take advantage of um, more uh, less inclement weather. Um, these birds are traveling um, in not a well-recognized east-west direction. That's very, very unusual. Um, and um, it sort of begs the question as to like most of these birds have some genetically coded pattern that encourages them to migrate in a particular direction. And is it pollution? Is it climate change that's changed the way that um, these birds read the signals? Has the message changed? I don't think anyone knows for sure. Um, but it is amazing that uh, an increasing number of these birds are, um, are not going north-south to Siberia. Um, and uh, and maybe um, there will be an entire population of them that does the east-west migration. Um, and, um, geez, it, it's interesting how the, the wintering grounds, those uh, particularly those Siberian, um, you know, there's been significant changes in that area because of climate change, but also um, in... Southeast Asia, where they uh, spend the winter, there's been huge habit modification to that part of the world as well. Um, and I know many of the migrating birds that do the East Asian, the, the East Asian flyway that end up in Australia and New Zealand before heading north. A lot of those birds um, also suffer from the urbanisation of various parts of their flight. Um, and who knows what what the underlying factors are. Um, geez, Brendan, it's a dramatic change in normal behaviour, don't you think? Have I dropped off now? I'm still being recorded, it looks they, like. <laughs> sorry about that. I was, I was um, chatting to you. I was replying to you there. We'll have to, um, we'll leave that in. As usual, yeah. I had the, um, I was reading the article as you were talking there with myself on mute, so I didn't make any sounds that would 
disrupt you. Um, yes, I'm just amazed at how far these animals migrate, Mark. Um, it's astounding. Um, and it reminded me of you, this article, um, <laughs> when they talk about the vagrant birds um, with the migration. It reminded me of your trip recently. I am um, a vagrant. With your um, migration in abnormal di- different directions than you normally would from your neck of the woods, Mark, yes. So, yes, good article, Mark, good article. My one um, is a very short one. Um, does The only link it has with your one is it does talk about Siberia as well. Um, and it's a, an interesting study that um, has found that ancient Arctic communities traded with the outside world as early as 7,000 years ago. And the way that they determined that was from DNA from the remains of Siberian dogs, Mark. Um, And analysis of the DNA showed that Arctic pups thousands of years ago were interbreeding with other dogs from the European Near East. And they were part of the um, trading um, route. Um, So they've, and um, because uh, um, they, Obviously, realised that the dogs very these dogs very rarely um, travelled without the humans that they were attached to, and they were used for sledding, hunting, herding reindeer, clothing, and food. Um, and that they originally thought the local dogs and their owners were completely isolated in the Siberian region, and they had no idea that they were exchanging. Um, trade routes um, with other regions, Mark. So, um, And they tracked this down from the DNA samples that they'd obtained from some of these, um, some of these um, fossils um, and archaeological digs. Um, so there you go, Mark. It gets back to dogs, Mark, man's, man's and human's best friend, a lot of people say. So, And a couple of really good picks there. On your travels, when you went down way, 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 way south to Antarctic, yeah. did you see any of the? Was did you see any of the? Was there any dogs down there at the bases or anything that you visited? No. Or in Argentina? What about in Argentina? Were you down in Argentina or not? Yeah, no. yep, yep. we were down that. Um, there were dogs on um, the, the peninsula there, Falklands, or? and down yep. on the Falklands. Um, there were some dogs on South Georgia because they were working to get rid of the rats. Ah. But those dogs have since gone. And as far as I know, um, there are no dogs in Antarctica at the moment. They've um, they've all been um, brought home, as I yes. understand it, to maintain that. So there'll be no 2,000-year-old archaeological digs of those ones down there. Um, they are wonderful pictures of the fossils. What What is the significance of the arrow in that picture, Brendan? Um is that dog yeah. going the wrong way in the trade route? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure, Mark. And we, we will have a link to this um, as usual um, to all our all our episodes at vetgurus.com. And yeah, um, let me have another look at. I'm not sure. Maybe it's pointing north. <laughs> that's a that's a compass sort of thing. I yeah. love. I love these. Um, the way that. Um, uh, unexpected bits of data can give you clues, you know, like who would think about ancient dog DNA giving you clues about um, trade routes? It's just I love the left field nature of it just pops out of nowhere that um, someone thought, oh, I think we'll check the DNA out on this fossil because it's only 2,000 years old. They can <laughs> do that. Um, and, yes. um, and then they figure out that, um, you know, that the dog's, 
came from somewhere else. It's an excellent bit of um, uh, archaeologic uh, uh, archaeologic sleuthing, forensic yes. um, paleontology. I don't know what you call it, Brendan. Good work is what it is, Mark. <laughs> Good work. Okay, let's jump into our main topic this week, and it's a bit of a tongue twister this one, isn't it, Mark? Clo- cloacoliths in parrots. So stones in the bum of parrots is what I'm going to call it um, <laughs> here on in. And why did we t- pick this one? Why did you pick this as a topic, Mark? Well, I picked it because uh, obviously a, a case came to my attention and it's a little bit of a um, an unusual one because while we see, well, I, I hope you do, um, I see quite, quite a lot of cloacoliths in... Um, Reptiles, the the uh, urate stones that um, can really clag them up as they reflux up the the uh, um, terminal colon. Um, the the in birds, it's far less common, um, but because it's less common, I think we don't keep our mind open to it, and we don't necessarily see the signs when it does happen, or we can easily mistake them for other much more common events, particularly, um, you know, because the signs include the sorts of things that you would expect when they're trying to expel something from their cloaca, that is, they're straining, um, they uh, inspect the area, they're often soiled, they often will suddenly expel because the whole urinary system and uh, digestive system are a little little bit out of sync. They'll often have unexpected spurts of feces or urine that stain their feathers. So these birds can very easily look like a bird that has a reproductive tract problem. And it's very important to keep in mind um, that while those things can be related, um, uh, cloacoliths are in fact a separate diagnosis. Yes, so you've already answered one of my questions there, Mark. Um, if you can expand a little bit more on the, the classic sort of signs that one of these patients would be presented to the clinic. And also, what are there any particular common species or species of parrot that you see it in more commonly um, and generally how often you know, in, in, in the clinic you worked at would you see um, this condition they are once a week once a month outstanding questions look um we would probably see it like you said about once a month um it is far less frequent than than other you know reproductive problems birds definitely show a higher frequency of those issues um but yep Every every um, uh, month or so, there would be a bird that uh, is presented um, for obstipation. The owners tend to be, because it's a little bit um, slower in onset, so many reproductive tract problems will be acute. So birds that have dystochia, that are egg-bound, um, that can be like a dramatic, serious emergency. Whereas these things will often... Uh, build up over time and so the birds will have two or three weeks where they're instead of going to the toilet you know 15 or 20 times a day they're only going five or ten times a day and then maybe only two or three Um, and then they might have a day or two where they're really struggling and then then things will return to normal for a while. Um, so, so they sort of have a slightly different presentation. The species that are involved in my experience tend to be 
what I think of as the squatter species. So birds that have a squatter sort of body shape. So um, birds like um, uh, um, eastern rosellas and Indian ringnecks, those elongated birds, it's less common in those guys. Um, and definitely we see a, an increased frequency in birds like galahs and um, eclectus parrots and uh, amazons, those sort of um uh, birds that are that have a propensity to a squatter tubbier appearance definitely um, are more commonly seen. Hmm. So, by the sound of it, you you're mainly seeing these are chronic conditions, and then eventually the client decides, "Oh, well, we better take the bird to the vet." Um, Indeed, that's the case. It's um, it's certainly something that many times when I'm talking to the clients about the history of these birds, there is a, um, it, it might even be they've been to a vet before and uh, and it has been a relatively um, long onset things. And I think a thing, and I think that speaks to the the complex etiology that there probably is a um, a component of. Uh, some of the factors that um, that reproductive hormones can affect. So um, I do think some of these birds will have a big urate. Um, they'll try to pass it, but um, they are ineffective at, um, at uh, moving through the, the, um, the colon or ureters. And so that stone sits there, and, and that can be due to um, calcium levels, inadequate calcium levels. Um, it can be due to uh, a slackening of the, the muscles in that area, the abdominal muscles, particularly the abdominal wall muscles. Many of these birds, you know, we talk, we the general thing that we look for next is how we're going to work them up. And taking radiographs of them is critically important. Um, it helps to distinguish the birds that might have an egg in place or some other structural reason from those that have the gritty, grainy appearance of a urate crystal in their cloaca. Um, so, so and, would you say it's you would need to put this condition on the differential list of any bird that is soiled around the vent area? and Definitely. Not, not and, and it's been, that's caught me a couple of times where I've assumed it's been a reproductive tract problem yes. and, uh, and, and it's not. Well, there's almost certainly a role that that plays, but that's not the primary problem, um, and uh, and you can be caught if you if you're not prepared to add that to your list of differentials and then distinguish between them. The other thing I find that helps me in the workup, um, a lot of these birds, in my experience, are very they they are. I suppose the whole um, gut has slowed as it fails to expel the cloacolith. Um, and they can often be significantly backed up. So they might not go to the toilet for it, not drop feces for a day, um, but those feces are in the colon and, and release toxins. And those so these birds can feel really sick and often regurgitate. So I love contrast studies with these birds, but I'm exceptionally cautious to not apply those uh, contrast media to the crop for fear that they'll be you know, thrown up and cause complications if they're aspirated. The best thing, I think, is to um, gently instill the contrast medium to the cloaca, um, have the bird anaesthetized, examine visually um, or with an endoscope the cloaca. It's often difficult because something's in there to see anything, 
but then gently instilling some contrast medium around uh, into the cloaca and around the structures in there can definitely serve to delineate them very clearly on radiographs. Yep, and by the sound of it, a radiograph is certainly the the, the one piece of okay. diagnostic yeah. tool that um, will show you up. Do, do any of these get to the stage where you can just physically feel that grit in there on a, on a brief clinical exam when you first see that bird or, or and and or does some of them end up with this huge you know huge stone there basically yeah definitely and one of the difficult things is that while the vast majority of eggs are nice and smooth and round and the vast majority of these cloacoliths are um, are generally urate based and, and irregular and roughened. Um, you definitely have some collapsed eggs that will mimic that appearance, and so um, you can definitely feel some of them. Um, and um, and even in some instances, um, you can, with appropriate lubrication, you can gently manipulate them out, um, and that often makes a, a big difference to the recovery of the bird. So you're advocating for the toothpaste method, Mark? <laughs> oh, I don't know that I'd call it exactly that, but gen- I think um, uh, suitable lubrication and uh, rehydration of the bird and, and uh, pain relief um, and then some gentle manipulation, trying not to apply the toothpaste technique, um, can, can generally get these uh, stones out for sure. Now, going back one little step there, step um, with the workup. So we've spoken about our radiographs, our X-rays. Um, what else um, are you going to do with that initial workup, Mark? As, I do. And, I think and, it's. And, go on. No, go ahead. I was just going to say. I was going to say blood, other... blood work. It's great yes. to get blood work, and it's really important to look at several key analytes, Brendan. I think um, having a look at the the um, the level of calcium. Um, that gives you a bit of a clue about um, the reproductive status of the bird and how that might be related. Um, the next thing to do is, um, you know, they very often, as I said, uh, they will have a degree of possible endotoxemia. And so um, just assessing the white blood cells and, and trying to get a handle on the extent of the inflammatory process associated with this. Um, and um, hydration status, having a look at the PCV um, and, uh, and forming a bit of an opinion about um, uh, how dehydrated the, the bird is. Because I, this is one of the things that, you know, our reptiles tend to cope with a much wider um, state of, of hydration that they would consider normal. And so homeostatic mechanisms um, like uh, pulling fluid from the digestive tract into the body do, don't happen as quickly in reptiles. Uh, but birds do have a much narrower uh, homeostatic range for hydration status. And if they're dehydrated, which makes these uh, more likely, um, then you can pick that up on their um, you know, a, an analysis of their their uh, red cells and protein. So, how do you determine when to stop, Mark, um, with your clean out of that backside area? Um, do we do we flush and 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 clear it out till there's nothing left there, or do you? Is it a subjective? Um, time to decide look let's stop here we've got most of it the rest of it will manage to um, expel itself 
Once again, an excellent question, Brendan. Um, and I think the key thing here is uh, this harkens back to a point that we make quite regularly. It's about communication. And the key thing with these cases I find is that um, that they're rel- very rarely a single, you know, remove this stone and everything's tickety-boo. Um, and so it is something that uh, would not be an uncommon thing for us to have a client, um, you know, gently uh, instilling some warm, salty water into the cloaca for several weeks after we've done this. And some of these birds will need multiple short anaesthetics to um, to. Uh, evacuate the cloaca and and it takes some time before the normal elasticity returns and the birds uh, can have a functional uh, event that doesn't accumulate these uh, urates in particular which tend to form the cloaca lifts yep um, and do you get some of the clients to do that process then? You mentioned yeah, about definitely. Okay. They most commonly, um, the good thing is that uh, in my experience, I generally find high, these clients to be um, uh, highly motivated. Um, and most of the time, um, the client will be able to, you know, provide those um, uh, regular enemas in between uh, hospital visits. What's the prognosis? Do they get better? Do they it's, recur? It's, How do we prevent oh, it? There we go. <laughs> the last yeah. three questions. <laughs> Good questions all. Um, they do have a moderate tendency to recur. Certainly I've had uh, birds who have, um, you know, completely recovered and never had another problem. Um, and as I said, that may take a... Um, uh, that recovery period may be several weeks and involve a couple of anaesthetics, but uh, certainly we have birds that have only ever, you know, have never returned to a problem. Uh, but we also have a cohort who um, will be will recover and then will end up with another problem a year or two down the track. Um, so there is some that are going to to recur. The good thing is that the number that don't recover at all that have um, that that's a relatively low proportion. Um, there are some birds that will have neurologic damage to the the uh, the, the cloaca region, and they'll have some um, nervous dysfunction that uh, uh, prevents them from ever gaining normal function again. Um, some of the birds that uh, have disproportionately large eggs, and those eggs press on the uh, some of the the nerves that leave the spine up in the pelvis, some of those birds may lose tone um, and um, and coordination, and so uh, develop problems with their cloaca. But fortunately, the vast majority of them get well. And how do we stop it, Mark? What's the key to prevention? Well, I think the key to prevention is. Um, some of the same things we talk about all the time. That is maintaining a fit bird. That's the first one. Um, That uh, making sure they have adequate environmental enrichment so that they do things and they don't just sit in the one spot. Monitoring their body weight. As I mentioned to begin with, those birds of the species that are that have a tendency to be squatter and prone to obesity tend to be overrepresented in the birds that have this condition. And so 
being very careful about their diets and watching their weight, making sure they exercise, all those things add to limit the chance of this occurring. Um, so I think, uh, you know, what do we always say? Husbandry, husbandry, husbandry. Um, that's clearly the way with this condition. Well, cloaca lifts mark. Now I know a lot more than I didn't did previously, which was not much at all um, with these conditions in them. And I'm glad to see that you are performing a variation on the toothpaste technique for these <laughs> um, conditions in them. Um, well, I think any final comments, Mark, before we close off for this week? I just think it's um, particularly worth people uh, keeping you know, their eye out as they see, um, as avian practitioners get to uh, see birds that have what look like reproductive problems, just keep an eye out for the possibility of a cloaca lith. Great advice. We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thanks.